Hey diddle diddle, here we are in the middle. The year's moving fast, the market's hotter than a griddle. Record highs are everywhere, who'd have thought this would happen? It was just a couple weeks ago our veneer started cracking. We were worried about inflation, we were scared about rates. We thought higher prices would bring losses to our gates. But investors have a way of ignoring these things. We keep buying and buying until the final bell rings. We see the government spending and it makes us buy more. That national debt keeps climbing. It's really such a bore. When you can't find yields and bonds are at the bank, we're just going to keep fishing in the same old tank. One day this won't work and we'll have to redress. But for now, we'll just kick it on the Investopedia Express. 33 record highs for the S&P 500 so far this year. They come in clusters and lately those clusters have been clustering. The Nasdaq also hit several record highs last week and the Dow Industrials are within striking distance. It's not the same stock market that produced all those record highs last year. In fact, market breadth is slightly weaker than it was six months ago, with only around 80% of stocks in the Russell 3000 trading above their 200-day moving average. Six months ago, 92% of stocks were doing that. The FANG stocks and Microsoft, which led the market in 2020, are taking a backseat to energy stocks and financials. Some would say that's a good sign, as too much concentration in too few stocks is always a little dangerous. We'll get into that later in the show, as Lizanne Saunders, Schwab's chief investment strategist, climbs back aboard the Express. How about commodities? The boom may be over as prices for everything from lumber to live cattle are well off their recent highs, but prices are still very elevated. Lumber remains twice the typical price for this time of year. Copper, row crops, and swine are all still around their highest prices in years. Oil and natural gas prices, which were destroyed in 2020, have risen sharply to their highest levels since 2018. Commodity prices have presented conflicting signals to investors. On the one hand, rising prices are seen as a threat to the recovery because they contribute to the higher cost for goods. That's inflation. On the other, investors tend to pile into commodities to benefit from rapid growth and to protect the rest of their portfolios against inflation. The problem is, that's where the inflation is. You know where else it is? Inside U.S. households. According to the Federal Reserve, U.S. households added $13.5 trillion in wealth in 2020 amid record stimulus payments from the federal government, low consumer spending, and a boom in asset prices like stocks and real estate. Compare last year's downturn to 2008. U.S. households lost $8 trillion during the great financial crisis as the value of everything, especially their homes, plummeted. But like 2008, but only worse, the gains have been lopsided. More than 70% of the increase in household wealth in the last year went to the top 20% of income earners. About a third went to the top 1%. Meanwhile, the U.S. poverty rate is expected to rise to 13.7% in 2021. That's up from 9.2% in 2020. But more government spending is on the way, and industrial stocks are feeling it. Cyclical stocks like Caterpillar got a big boost last week after President Biden announced a bipartisan deal on infrastructure spending. The agreement calls for $579 billion of spending above expected federal levels and a total $973 billion of investment over five years or $1.2 trillion if continued over eight years. Some of the big spending areas? Transportation, $312 billion. Other infrastructure projects, $266 billion. Roads and bridges, $109 billion. Power infrastructure, $73 billion. And passenger and freight rail, $66 billion. That never gets old. With all the enthusiasm for stocks swirling around again, the U.S. IPO market is on fire. 
It set another 21-year record in the second quarter with 220 IPOs in just the first half of 2021. That's more than we see in a typical year. And that doesn't count the hundreds of companies going public via SPAC, those special purpose acquisition companies. If you win a SPAC game, you know what I'm talking about. We sick of IPOs day one locking us out. What's up, Cassius? We got to get you back on this train. 16 IPOs raised $6.3 billion in just the past week. This week, we have the Uber of China, Didi Global, set to start trading on Wednesday, followed by D-Market, the Amazon of Turkey, as it's called, on Thursday. And two well-known U.S. companies are returning to the public markets with LegalZoom coming midweek and Krispy Kreme in the next few weeks. Have you tried that donut yet? Let's get set up for the week ahead. After the best week for the S&P 500 since February, investors may have high expectations going into this week. We've been climbing walls of worry all year, but stocks continue to push higher on hopes that inflation is as transitory as the Fed says, and that more government spending is on the way if, and it's a big if, this infrastructure bill gets passed. Treasury yields bumped a little higher last week, but the yield on the 10-year has been stubbornly stuck between 1.5% and 1.6% for weeks. That makes stocks hard to resist for investors seeking returns. The U.S. housing market will be in focus again on Tuesday as the S&P Case-Shiller housing price indexes will be released. We know U.S. home prices are up around 20% from a year ago, and inventory is tight. Cities like Phoenix, Las Vegas, and San Diego have seen the biggest increases, with a lot of new residents moving in amid the pandemic. We'll see if the rise in prices is finally cooling or really just starting to heat up. We'll also get a report on existing home sales for June. We learned last week that the pace of new home sales fell to its lowest level in a year as rising prices may have scared off some buyers. Are existing home sales also starting to slow? And in which markets? We'll find out on Tuesday. We'll get the June non-farms payroll report on Friday a.k.a. the jobs report, and after the disappointing job gains in May and April relative to expectations, there's a lot riding on this reading. The unemployment rate is at 5.8%, but the labor force participation rate is 61.6%. It actually fell last month as fewer people joined company payrolls. Many blame the pandemic unemployment insurance payments that are set to expire in early September for the lack of Americans seeking work, especially given how tight the labor market is right now. 26 states have already eliminated those payments, and companies are hungry for workers. Incentive bonuses, higher salaries, work-from-home benefits, they're throwing everything they can to bring more workers off the sideline. It's hard to believe that there are still a few companies that need to report last quarter's results, especially as the second quarter comes to a close on June 30th. But there are. Notably, Bed Bath & Beyond will report results on Wednesday. And while the company is benefiting from robust consumer spending, the stock has been among the recent favorites of day traders on Wall Street bets. Shares of Bed Bath & Beyond are up 65% year-to-date, and lately meme stocks have been taking advantage of their swollen share prices to issue more shares. Will Bed Bath & Beyond do the same? General Mills also reports quarterly results on Wednesday, and we should expect to hear that inflationary pressures are forcing the company to raise prices on everything from Cheerios to pints of haagen Shares of General Mills are basically flat for the year, far underperforming the S&P 500, which has returned 14% year-to-date. As we near the midpoint of the year, take a good look around. This could be the peak of the economic expansion and corporate profits for a while. 
The climb has been furious amid the economic recovery, and it's kicking off all kinds of inflation across commodities, consumer goods, producer prices, and wages. The Fed says those prices are transitory. We're going to have to see about that. But for equity investors, it's been a very good year, to quote the chairman of the board. But is this as good as it will get? Lizanne Saunders, the chief investment strategist for Charles Schwab, is back on The Express, and she and her great team are out with their mid-year review and forecast. It's so good to have you back on the show, Lizanne. Thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Caleb. You're a rocker, an admitted rocker, and we love that here (laughs) on The Express. We like to go to 11. And you've got some great musical metaphors in all your reports, but in your mid-year outlook to help put things in perspective. Last year at this time, you were leading with Gimme Shelter, the great tune from the Rolling Stones. That made sense for obvious reasons. And then the stock market ripped 75% higher. This year, you say you're going back with Back in the Saddle Again by Aerosmith. The economy's definitely recovered, Lizanne, but it's getting a little bumpy in that saddle. Is it trotting too quickly? Well, I think, as you noted in your intro, I think second quarter will be not a peak in the level of growth, either for the economy or earnings, but a peak in the growth rate. And that's, of course, because the comps on a year-over-year basis are to last year when everything was shut down. So that's really just simple math. And I, I think that's obviously coming into play in the inflation discussion too, with those base effects. And those largely start to fade imminently. The market's now 90%-ish gains since the March lows of last year, certainly prices in a lot of the good news that we're in the midst of seeing right now, whether it's priced all of it in, who knows. But I've been saying for a while that I think the success of the market in the past year has bred its greatest risk, which is a very frothy sentiment environment. And in and of itself, that doesn't suggest a contrarian move. It just, I think, establishes risk to the extent there's a negative catalyst, whatever that may be. You said it. I mean, let's talk about some of those contrarian indicators. Everyone's bullish. Look at individual investor sentiment, still pretty high. Investopedia readers, we survey them every six weeks, almost at their all-time highs for the past 13 months or so. Institutional investors too. Is this a function of Tina, those low interest rates? There's no alternative right now. We know where interest rates are going to be until now, sort of 2023. They said maybe the end now it's going to be somewhere in the beginning, middle of 2023. Is it that, you know, investors need deal? What, what else can they do? Well, yes, I think a lot of it is a Tina environment, even with the doubling in the 10 year yield that occurred in the first quarter of this year, you're still looking at incredibly low interest rates. But the surge in liquidity is unlike anything we have ever seen. And although it hasn't led to an increase in money velocity in the real economy, it has led to massive inflation, so to speak, in asset prices. That's why you've seen what you've seen in housing and same with the stock market. So I think this is just a liquidity-fueled appreciation across asset classes, including stocks. Sure. And the liquidity as as it relates to going to individuals and households, that's coming to an end in terms of stimulus payments. We're not getting any more of those or the unemployment benefits, uh, the pandemic related unemployment benefits, those coming to an end in September for the states that haven't already ended them right now. So you got consumers that had the personal savings rate kind of at an all time high. You don't have a lot of consumer debt here. The spending, you know, consumers want to do, but the economy feels a little imbalanced right now. Do you Do you feel like we'll see more spending through the second half? What's coming to fruition is what you and I may have spoken about this is is what I anticipated would be the case, which is that the pent up demand on the good side of the economy has been phenomenal and really has been met with supply. And that's why most goods based metrics went to above pre pandemic levels last year. 
And I think there was too rosy an assumption that that demand would stay elevated and we would then get the pent-up demand on the services side. What I expected to happen, which so far anyway is happening, is it's more of a shift in demand away from goods, certainly away from the pace of goods consumption of last year toward the services side of the economy. And that's why you've seen some of the weaker than expected data recently in the last couple of months has been biased on the goods side, clearly not on the services side. So I still think we have a ways to go in terms of satiating that pent-up demand on the services side. But I think there was too much enthusiasm that that good side consumption demand would remain high. And then the savings rate piece is interesting because, you know, many of the roaring 20s assumptions, the, the boom, 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 not that it's a base case, but anybody that has that view bases it to some degree off of the savings rate coming back down to mid single digit levels like existed in the last expansion, I'm not sure that we can make that assumption. What we don't know is whether the unique nature of this pandemic maybe brought about a paradox of thrift and that we're going to maintain a more elevated savings rate. So I don't think you, it's too soon to just do the math of if we go from a more than 20% savings rate back down to, you know, five to 7%, that's X trillions of dollars going into the economy via consumption. I'm not sure that we can make that assumption. Right. I don't disagree with you. Let's talk a little bit about the labor imbalance. Demand is so high right now for labor. You see restaurants probably out where you are that can't stay open late. They're maybe closing early. They can't seat people. Everything's taken forever. We still have 3.4 million people on continuing claims, eight and a half million people out of the workforce that were in it pre-pandemic, a pretty low labor force participation rate. What will it take to end those beyond those unemployment benefits ending at the end of September to get people back into the workforce? Or is that what it's going to take? So I think it's a combination of things and, and a couple of key Aspects do congeal around that early September time period. You still have about half states that are keeping them in place until the official expiration in early September. Of course, about a half of states have ended them sooner. And what's interesting is in most, though not all, of those states that expired those enhanced unemployment benefits early you have seen greater declines in filings for unemployment insurance. And that should have been expected, but we just weren't sure how much of a factor that was. But also by early September, once all of that has expired, we will also, we're going we're to assume that anybody with kids, those kids are going back to school, that schools are open. So the ancillary positions associated with the education industry beyond teachers that maintained employment, but did their teaching via Zoom or otherwise, that that brings a lot of workers back into the mix. So I think we'll start to, and we'll also have a little bit more clarity on some of the the seasonal issues, some of the data gathering issues that were driven by shutdown. So we'll start to clear some of the unique vagaries of the of labor market data and and maybe get a better sense of what to your point is this very odd mixed message coming from various labor market indicators of 7.8 million jobs shy still of pre-pandemic yet you know job openings off the chart NFIB hiring intentions off the charts I think the skills gap piece of this isn't going away because, as you well know, the skills gap issue 
has been a burning issue even pre-pandemic. That's not a brand new thing. That's been an issue. And and I think the solution to that is a longer term one, but about how we provide the education and the skills for the jobs of now and tomorrow and maybe rethinking training, education, Votech, et cetera, et cetera. So that could be an interesting thing that does come out of the pandemic as a greater focus on how we solve this skills gap problem. Sure. The pandemic probably exacerbated that even worse, because if you could work from home in the knowledge industry or in an industry where that was okay to do, you're probably able to keep your job. You maybe even done better in some cases. And those that weren't, and we saw it across the services part of the economy, particularly leisure, hospitality, transportation, some of those other services where you just can't do it. Obviously, that impacts income inequality even more because typically, you know, those jobs are concentrated in those areas. And they were more affected by the health aspect of the crisis as well. So it was sort of a triple whammy on certain cohorts and segments of the population, which is uh, doubly sad when you think about it. Let's talk about the rotation in the stock market right now. The investors have kind of rotated from growth to value, now back to growth in tech and healthcare again. What, what do you make of that? Is that, again, that search for yield and trying to, to find the right temperature for how inflationary pressures and how these other pressures are going to affect the overall stock market? So here's the funny thing about the growth value discussion debate, whatever you want to call it. I find that there is almost always not enough description or nuance to the growth versus value. And when I have a conversation with somebody and they start talking about growth and value, or if I'm reading something, the first thing I think or say is, well, what are you talking about when you talk about growth versus value? Are you talking about the indexes of growth and value? If so, are you talking about S&P growth and value, Russell 1000 growth value, Russell 2000 growth value? And even if you're saying, let's talk value, The differences in the sector representations within all three of those value indexes is significant. Financials are almost 30% of Russell 2000 value, much less of a percent in in S&P or Russell 1000. Tech, there's a big differential. Healthcare, industrials, across those growth and value So I think a lot of the moves that maybe boosted the value indexes had more to do with what was going on in the financials and energy, the fundamental drivers, the yield curve, oil prices, and it just accrued to the benefit of value indexes. Here's an interesting thing I just did yesterday. I looked at various screening tools that we have, and I picked a common value factor and a common growth factor. So free cash flow yield as a common value factor, long-term earnings growth as a growth factor and applied them to all 11 sectors, basically screening for stocks that screen well on the value factor versus those that screen well on the growth factor. So based on that, value is outperforming growth more in the growthier sectors. So the two sectors where value is outperforming growth most are communication services and consumer discretionary. Well, people would think those are growth, but the value factor is outperforming. The only sector where growth is handily outperforming value is in energy. How about that? But that's a value sector. Right, of course. But the companies that screen well on long-term growth within energy are doing better. So it's sort of flipped on its head. So when I talk about growth and value, I'm talking about the factors or characteristics. I think value, you want to continue to focus on value. 
But that what I, when I say that, that doesn't mean just put blinders on and buy one of the value indexes. Utilities, we have an underperforming utilities. They're really expensive as a sector, really expensive. They're not in the growth indexes. They're still housed in the value indexes, but they don't offer any value. And you can find value even in tech. So I think investors should focus on value. But what I mean by that is something I think different than what kind of the standard thinking about growth and value means. Sure. And the media, present company included, sometimes we paint too broad a picture. What the NASDAQ is outperforming the Dow, we immediately say gross outperforming value, but it is not that way anymore. Companies are so different and so are they inside sectors. Think about the big five, the Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook. They were pretty much all of the market's performance from the low in March until early September. Year to date through September 2nd, the big five were up 65%. The entire rest of the S&P 500 was only up 3%. As they go, so goes the market. They're so heavy. Those were the COVID defensive names. Absolutely. Defensive doesn't always mean utilities and consumer staples. Just like momentum, when people say momentum, they think, oh, tech and high beta. Well, bonds can have momentum. Utilities can have momentum just means that things that were working continue to work regardless of where the momentum was. So we have these labels that infer something, I think, that isn't necessarily the same in every cycle. And these growthy type names became this cycle's defensive names. Arguably, the, the, the FANG stocks were the utilities because they were the safety plays when things were going nuts right. and they were growing. Because they, we, were, we were living, eating and breathing, so to speak, in the, those ecosystems yep. and nowhere else because everything was shut down. Yeah, I remember you and I were talking about that 40 episodes ago or so. So how is Schwab counseling individual investors, the listeners of this program and others, your customers? What are you telling them about the next six months and and how to protect or prepare for what's to come? We always start with the base of recommendations that we would always have regardless of the unique circumstances of the past 15 months. It's, you know, don't wing it, have a plan, rely on those tried and true things like diversification and rebalancing. And especially when you get into an environment like this, where you're second year into a recovery, the market from a valuation perspective is pretty expensive. You've got now the prospects of the beginning of tightening of monetary policy, fiscal stimulus in the rear view mirror. But the thing not to do is try to anticipate what might be the next bear market or the next correction and then make wholesale decisions. That's just gambling on moments in time. And and that should never be what investing is about. But there are strategies you can employ to minimize some of the risk associated with where we are in the cycle and some of the risks that we already talked about. One would be maybe slightly more frequent rebalancing. A lot of investors, either through a program they're in or on their own, might rebalance on an annual basis. Maybe consider it not being calendar-based, but be portfolio change and volatility-based. Take advantage of what rebalancing, the beauty of rebalancing is it forces us to add low and trim high so that you're not finding yourself with outsized positions in an area that's maybe had speculative froth. And then when the inevitable move down, it's a bigger portion of your portfolio. The take a factor-based approach as opposed to a sector or a style-based approach, which we already touched on. Make sure you don't have all your eggs, say, in the U.S. basket. I think that's a mistake that investors have made either 
by default because the U.S. exposure has appreciated much more already this year. And we went to an overweight non-U.S. earlier this year. We're seeing outperformance by many developed markets relative to the U.S. And even in a rising interest rate environment, there still is a ballast that can be added in a portfolio to having fixed income. The notion that simply because yields are going up or or rates are eventually going up that you want to completely eliminate your fixed income exposure suggests maybe a lack of understanding about what tends to happen in the fixed income market, even in a rising rate environment. There are strategies of shortening duration, taking a laddered approach, et cetera. And the inflation piece, which I know a lot of investors want to try to figure out how to hedge within a portfolio, actually equities broadly have done pretty well as an inflation hedge. Small caps generally do better in a rising inflation environment. So there's lots of strategies that can be employed, but those are some of the nuances to the long-term disciplines that, that we have been recommending specific to these unique circumstances. What's your hottest take, Liz, for the next six months? Oh, boy. I often say disregard anybody with a hot take or a single best idea. I think the bond market is generally and particular recently a much more provides a much more rational perspective on what's actually going on in the economy with inflation. And I'd say for equity investors that generally may not ever pay attention to the bond market, you want to pay really close attention to the bond market and the signals coming from the bond market. Because I think the easing in upward pressure on the 10-year yield was directly related to some of the leadership shifts we saw within the equity market and the messaging around Fed policy and inflation. I think you can glean that message more from the rational bond market than you can the often irrational equity market. Yeah, great call. And big time investors know, listen to the bond market. That's where the money is. And you got to watch what's happening inside that. Final question, Liz, you are a rock and roller. What's your step up to the plate song? It's the bottom of the ninth, base is loaded. You're down three runs. You get called up to the plate. What are we hearing from the PA system as you walk up? Wow. Boy, I sort of have a top five cashmere. By Led Zeppelin. Oh, what a great call. What a great call. And if we weren't for the uh, if it weren't for the copyrights, we'd play that on the way out here. We're so grateful for your time and for your analysis. Liz Ann Saunders, the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab. Thanks so much for being back on the Express. Thanks, Caleb. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us courtesy of Michael in Forestport, New York, up there in the northwest part of the Empire State. Michael suggests survivorship bias this week. Survivorship bias, according to my favorite website, is the tendency to view the performance of existing stocks or funds in the market as a representative comprehensive sample without regarding those that have gone bust. Survivorship bias can also result in the overestimation of historical performance and general attributes of a fund or stock market index. We like that term this week, especially given Lizanne Saunders' smart description of what's really happening inside the so-called growth and value indexes in the market today. Remember, it's a market of stocks, not a stock market, and they aren't all behaving the same in this stage of the recovery. So it's an even better excuse to rebalance. Good suggestion, Michael. You'll be getting the ruggedly handsome Investopedia socks in the mail for your next trip down the Black River up there. We'll let Jack Bogle take us out this week. The legendary founder of Vanguard and the godfather of index investing had a special disdain for the excesses in exchange-traded funds, or ETFs as we call them. 
Out of the thousands of ETFs out there in the market, Bogle said that only about 25 of them actually made sense. The rest, he said, were simply there to encourage more trading among and between brokers. Here's Bogle in 2017 in an interview we did in his great office on the Vanguard campus, repeating his familiar refrain about the dangers of trading. Every piece of data that's ever been produced says that trading is the investor's enemy. The more you trade, the less you make. I really miss that guy. No overtrading this week, although we are coming up on the end of the quarter and the end of the first half of the year. It's a good time to rebalance and reassess our portfolios. Stay in balance this week, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line. 